Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. This is the Doing It for Bartolo podcast. My name is Gene Lee, and on the, on the other line with me, I have Robbie Harms. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, this is a new podcast, something new that we'll be trying over the coming months and weeks, and hopefully it'll be something that you guys tune into on a weekly basis. We're hoping to do some great interviews with a bunch of people from the sports world, the pop culture world, and talking to them about their careers, their lives, a whole variety of things, and we're hoping to also talk about whatever's on our mind, whether it's... Uh, Life, sports, pop culture, movies that we're watching, whatever. Uh, so hopefully this will be something fun that you guys can listen to uh, on your commute or your walking to class or whatever. Uh, Robbie, Robbie is out there in San Diego living living the big life. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, I'm a sports reporter for the uh, newspaper out here, the San Diego Union Tribune. Um, and then June is back east um, in... Ithaca, New York, a uh, student at Cornell, right? Yeah, doing it big time up in upstate New York. <laughs> as much as one can do it uh, big time in upstate New York. I get excited to go to the mall here. Like, I went, <laughs> I went to see Creed today, and I got excited to go to a, a crappy mall. Yeah, you saw, like, you know, civilization, like what people actually look like, right? Yeah, it was it was fantastic. Um, uh, this is, I mean, the doing it for Bartolo uh, is, uh, is something that we came up with we were talking over a couple of emails over about a month ago, and uh, and Robbie yeah, and I just, bo- just kind of stuck. I was I actually it was on Halloween. I think I was at a Halloween party dressed as fantasy basketball, um, and June shot me an email um, and he said doing it for Bartolo. I think that was the entire subject, and I was just like, yes, I'm on board. Um, so if you don't know, uh, Bartolo is uh, Bartolo Cologne, um, a yeah, a uh, a pitcher for the New York Mets who defies uh, time, space, gravity, physics, expectations, age, um, and we both have you know a strong affection for him. So as many people um, who follow baseball do. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we are uh, every episode we're recording for Bartolo Cologne, and uh, the dream is to one day get him on here. So. But but this week we have Jay Caspian Kang, um, which June will tell you about. Yeah, Jay. So Jay Caspian Kang, if you guys are of uh, follow him on the internet. He used to write for Grantland. He's now at the New York Times Magazine. Uh, we talked to him about a variety of things. Uh, be, uh, working for Grantland and, and seeing that the end of, of Grantland uh, at ESPN over the last few months. Working under Bill Simmons, what that was like, and working for the New York Times and uh, Lynn Sandy and how that was the best time of our lives as Haitian Americans in sports. And, and also the idea, thinking about... Uh, being Asian American in sports media and what that means to him and, and his career and how that influences how he writes. Uh, so it was a very interesting co- uh, conversation and I really appreciate Jay coming on and taking the time to to talk to some some guys who have a podcast that has zero <laughs> listeners currently. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, this is Jay Caspian Kang. All right, so Jay, thanks for thanks for coming on to the show today. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Yeah, no problem. So, so you you work for you work for the New York Times now, and, and you spend a lot of time at Grantland. I mean, just kind of going back to to when you were growing up. Um, I mean, you had a, you had a pretty you moved around a lot when you were growing up. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, see, I was born in Korea. I didn't stay there for more than really a month, um, and I spent. The first half of my childhood in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then my family moved to North Carolina when I was like 12 or something like that, or 11. And then I spent the rest, 
I went to high school, middle school there. I went to school. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is that moving around a lot? I feel like compared to like military families or. I mean, I think to I think compared to most people, that's I mean that's moving a pretty significant amount. That's like across the world, and then like across down downward across the country ish. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. How, I mean, I, mean, I moved a lot, yeah. much more since college, but uh, yeah, I mean that's mostly job stuff. Yeah, I mean, how did how did you like living in the in the South? I guess I mean, were you one of like the only Asian kids there? In the South. Uh, Let's see. Well, I grew up in Chapel Hill, which is like a famously progressive town in the South. Right. Um, and um, I don't know. I I think I probably was. I think there were probably like something. I went to a very big high school. There was like 3,500 kids there. And there might have been like 20, maybe less Asian kids at the whole school. Um, and maybe I, I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to be fact-checked on that number because I don't quite remember. Like, I was young and, you know, it was like 20 years ago. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I guess I, it wasn't too common back then. Uh, the town has become much, much more Asian since with the growth of the Research Triangle Park, uh, which is sort of like pharmaceutical center that's located somewhere around Durham near Duke. And then, of course, the university is bringing a lot of international students. And so... I went recently uh, when those three uh, students were executed by their neighbor. That horrible story. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seemed like the town had sort of gotten a lot more, for lack of a word, better word, diverse. Yeah, I mean, like, it was it was weird for me growing up because, like, I, I grew up, I grew up, like, predominantly near Boston for, like, the first half of my life. And then my dad, uh, he got his Ph.D. at BU, and uh, we, we ended up moving out towards Western Mass., and uh, we, when we moved out towards Western Mass, there was I was like one of the only Asian kids there. Uh, in, 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 uh, is a town called Longmeadow, right outside of Springfield. And um, uh, it's because he, he got his first job at, at a school out there, um, teaching accounting. And um, and uh, a lot of the kids there for a couple of years thought I was I was an, an adopted Jewish kid because the only Asian kids in that town were were kids who had been adopted by the Jewish families in town. So it, it was it was really odd to like become self aware about my my like racial identity when it was something that I like I hadn't even thought about until like until maybe probably fifth grade. because um, I, I was living in a town that was super progressive and lots of Asian kids. It was a Japanese exchange program in my school. Um and so I guess like being Asian was never something that I really thought about. Wait, in fifth grade this happened to you? Yeah, I mean there was there were kids there were kids that like start like it was it became very clear that a lot of the things that uh that were happening to me at school were as a result of just like me looking different and them not having any experience of being around other Asian people. I wasn't yeah, I mean that's remarkable. I mean I, th- I don't think that I was really aware of that until I was much older than fifth grade. I mean, I just felt, you know, you just do the usual thing where you're just like, well, it must be something that I'm doing or, uh, you know, it must be the teacher's fault or something. Um, mostly I ended up blaming like, you know, people in power more than like general. I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, fuck this teacher, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, where, so what part of Boston, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't imagine that people listening to this are that much interested in my biographical details, but, uh, yeah, um, I, it's, it was, it's, it wasn't really, I, I think I had pretty, um, 
normal childhood of anybody who like lives in college towns sure. type of thing. Yeah. I, when did, at what point did you kind of get interested in going into writing then? Um, I don't know. It always seemed inevitable to me, which is a lame answer, but, but I mean, not that I would be able to do it professionally, but that I would make an attempt to do it. Um, I can't really remember a time when I didn't feel that way. I think even like going back to like the third grade or something like that, uh, it seemed very, it seemed like this was what I was supposed to do. And I can't remember what it was if it was like, uh, you know, people have stories about teachers that encourage them or um, parental advice or something like that, or one moment of, you know, where they like realized they could do it. I don't really have any of that. I, I think that. I don't know. I, I guess I just don't think that way. It's just very like, oh, well, this is what you're going to do. And, um, you know, and I began to really structure my life from an early age around um, giving myself a reasonable shot at it, I think. Uh, and it, it's strange because it, it's not even really what I wanted to do. It just seemed like that was a default. Like what I really wanted to do as a kid was become a, like or even in high school and college was to be like a criminal defense attorney. Really? Uh, huh. Yeah, and um, and I still want to be a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> like, <when> I do <laughs> stories where I talk to lawyers who are like uh, you know defend defending people uh, in court or plea bargains or whatever. Um, I get very you know I, I feel very jealous about it. I feel like they're doing like work that. Um, Especially, you know, like I, I would have wanted to go into some sort of form of public defense, and I just think that that's like, a, I think that's a really crucial part of the legal system, and um, I feel like I could do it without much moral ambiguity um, outside of the usual things that happen where you're like, well, am I defending guilty people? Uh, you know, and I don't know. I think that it, it's different than writing in the sense where a lot of times when you're writing, um, especially for the audiences that I've written for sometimes get a sense like, you know, like, what is this really good for, you know, um, who's reading this and like, what, what changes this affecting in the world? Mm -hmm. what, were, what were some of the kind of the things that you were doing to, to set yourself up to, to, to write? Were you like working for your high school newspaper? Were you, I mean, what kind of things were you doing? Yeah, I did that. Um, I don't know. Mostly I just read a lot. Uh, I think in fifth grade, my teacher, I get this as a teacher moment. Uh, my teacher um, sort of bragged about reading like 200 pages a night. Um, and I just remember, it's like almost an offhand comment, but I remember it stuck in my head. And I decided at that point that I was going to read more than her. Like, I don't even, I, I really disliked her. And I just felt like it, <laughs> for some reason in my head, it was so just it was like, like. it was out of spite? Yeah, it was out of spite. Um, and but it was also good, you know, because I ended up reading it, and it, I don't know. It's like I didn't even really explain it to her, uh, um, or tell her that I was doing this, you know. But I think it was just one of those competitive things that happened. Um, that's sort of formative when you're like a young kid and you just say, well, you know, like you have this realization that the people that you are supposed to admire, um, you know, like you can do what they're doing. And it builds confidence, I think. So I just read a lot, like uh, between fifth grade and probably the end of high school. I mean, I, I don't know. I just read so much that um, I think that that sort of set up a, 
lexicon or whatever vocabulary in my head that I was, you know, probably not getting from my parents. What what were some what were the, some of the things or who were some of the the writers that you enjoyed reading or or enjoy reading today? Um, well, back then I read everything. I read uh, like everything from like I I've read like all of L. Ron Hubbard's Battlefield Earth books, for example. <laughs> And then I would read that and, you know, the stuff that I was supposed to read, uh, like, I don't know, uh, Dickens or Invisible Man or uh, Tess of the Darbervilles or whatever. Um, now, I don't read as much at all anymore because of the Internet and... Um, and, you know, and I also think that, like, when... I'm 35 now, I think, once you pass 30-something... A lot of people slow down a lot the number of books they read because they become busy with other things. Um, I'm not particularly busy because I'm a writer, so I spend a lot of time at home by myself. But uh, I don't know. I, I find myself going to other distractions. Like uh, I've been playing like that game Hearthstone a lot recently, or I play my friend in FIFA like uh, for like two hours. Two hours at a time. That's that. I mean, that sounds a lot like me in college. To be fair, <laughs> like, like my friends and I, like after after coming home from the library, we'll literally just turn on my TV and we'll play Madden for a couple hours, and be it'll be like one. We'll look at the clock, it'll be like one o'clock, and we'll be like, okay, we should probably go to bed now. But in the over the course of being a college student, I imagine you have to read a lot, right? Uh, of like things that are. Um, Either uh, some, some sort of or literary like, value, yeah. yeah. Some sort of value. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, so then I wonder if uh, I sometimes think. Well, I don't actually sometimes think. I just think basically that this has been pretty bad, and that um, I think it's. Yeah, I think that I personally have just become a less rigorous writer because. Um, I spend so much time reading all the things on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's like most of the things on the internet, um, like there's no sort of aspirational sense of the writing or the, you know, there's nothing inspirational about the way it's written. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to study, um, you know. And it's, every once in a while you come across things, and then with reporting, I think there are a lot of reporters who I really admire um, who I can kind of look at their work and, uh, try and figure out how they did it. It's exciting, um, but you know, I think that's different than just sort of the hours that I, most writers I know, including myself, spend uh, just sort of screwing around on the internet. Um, who are some of the the reporters and the the writers that you kind of uh, that you kind of look up to or or kind of look to their work? And uh, I mean, I don't, for me, like I, for me, a lot of writers have told me like if I read somebody's um, journalism work and I feel jealous that means like I that means uh, it means a lot that they feel jealous that um, or they look at somebody's work and they and they feel like oh I wish I would I could have done that or wish I could have thought of that um, you mean some people who I like that um, sure let's see uh, Larissa McFarquhar at the New Yorker I think is really great she wrote a piece recently about like a it's part of her book, which I think is about like sort of extreme altruism. Um, and she wrote one of the excerpts from the book was a story about a family who kept adopting children until they had had like some, some ungodly number, like 20 something kids. Um, the way that she approached that, I thought was really sort of brilliant. Um, Ari Levy at also at the New Yorker. I uh, sometimes find myself reading and just sort of marveling at the, uh, 
level of intelligence mm-hmm. there. Yeah, like I, I feel ability. the same way. <laughs> yeah, like uh, her piece on. Um, yeah, it's not you know Thanksgiving in Mongolia was a wonderful piece, and I think that it's right that she is was uh, that that sort of the first piece I think that a lot of people associate with her now. Yeah, I mean, like, I studied that piece in class last year. Like, it's, 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 it's enormous. Um, yeah, I, let's, I don't know. <laughs> it's, like, a little bit embarrassing. A lot of them really are New Yorker writers. I don't want to feel so institution. Like, I would like to be, like, a, you know, like, come up with somebody who writes for, like, Descent or something like that, you know. I'd, like, sound a little... <laughs> but it really is a, I don't know I guess I'm like lame at this point I don't really um, I would see Mina Kynes I think that Mina is like one of the best reporters in America um, uh, she's at ESPN the magazine um, like if her ESPN work the eSports piece is great oh yeah and then her work when she was as a financial reporter um, or business reporter, like features reporter, I think, man, that's some of that stuff is just like, you're just like, I don't understand how you reported this. Um, so that's, uh, and then, um, let's see, a lot of investigative guys I really look up to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I just don't quite get how they spend so much time doing all of this or how they sort of organize keep it organized you know mm-hmm. um and i sort of look at them almost like i look at guys in sports betting or like uh, fantasy sports or prediction markets who you know have like these really complicated spreadsheets and like uh, are able to organize their thoughts in a way that i i can't even though i'm playing like the same sort of game that they are mm-hmm. um yeah so that's i don't know I, I, there's a lot of people i really do look up how did, how did you kind of develop your, your, your sense of reporting, and how do you think kind of your background um, kind of influenced how, how you approach things? Um, well, I hadn't really reported anything because I was a fiction writer until 2011, and, and um, I was writing about gambling from a sort of personal standpoint before and uh, one of the pieces I wrote did very well on the internet, and I uh, it sort of helped me get in contact with a lot of people who it seemed before that it would be unfathomable to be in contact with. And so I was given an assignment by the Times Magazine in 2011 to write about like a young online poker player who had won like. I don't remember the number. I think it was like $6 million a year before. Maybe it's less than that. Um, and that was my first reporting trip, uh, you know, in life, really. At the school newspaper, I had been a sort of column opinion write, joke writer almost, you know. <laughs> like, it's like I like wrote like a Andy Rooney-type column. <laughs> um, yeah, so then I went, and I was, you know, I, I still feel this way. I just felt like a total imposter, and I felt like I was playing reporter. But it was, I was very lucky in that, like, the, the editor was very smart, and he set me up with a assignment with a very high chance of success, you know, because uh, he knew that I hadn't reported much and, um, and or at all, and that uh, he knew that me sitting with a relatively unknown 21-year-old actually completely unknown 21-year-old in his apartment in Orlando 
was not going to be something where I had to deal with PR people or like have to, you know, um, dig up a bunch of stuff, but that it would all just sort of be observational and that there would be a chance that maybe I could do that, you know? Um, and so I did, I, the guy was nice enough to spend like three or four days with me. I went down there. Um, you know, I overreported it in the sense that I like called every single person in the poker community afterwards to talk about him. Um, and, uh, and spent a long time on just trying to figure out the things that I actually had to do. And then I think the piece is reported. Okay. I, I mean, I don't think it was reported well, but I think it was reported well enough to like have the story stand up, you know? Um, and from then I realized that, uh, that I was going to have a real ceiling when it came to being a writer, um, if I wanted to do journalism, unless I became a really good reporter and that at the time I was like not a reporter at all. And so after I got to Grantland, which was a few months later, I think it was like three months later, maybe, or maybe it was more than that. I, I really don't remember the timelines, but, um. I uh, worked a lot with Bill um, to set up the site and with Dan and with Lane and some of the early people. And that took up all my time um, for about a year. And then afterwards, I really wanted to get out and do this. Like, I wanted to learn how to report. And so, uh, you know, Bill and the guys at Grantland were really generous in giving me opportunities to like fail. And a lot of them, I just failed. Like I just did a terrible job reporting it. But over the next two years, I think with their support, I like uh, became like a serviceably okay, you know, mm -hmm. reporter. Like I think I'm like a Steve Traxel <laughs> level or something like that compared to some of these guys that I see or a girl, you know, like, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I, like people like like I said like Ari Levy or whoever I mean or um uh yeah so or like Patrick Radnke or something I like it as reporting I'm like wow yeah it's really impressive <laughs> like I feel like Steve Traxel watching like you know uh I don't know Pedro Pitch what 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 were some of the what were some of the stories that you feel like you did fail at and and how how do you think you failed Oh man I don't know I mean you know um. I mean, a lot of them never made it to print, you know? <laughs> so, for example, for a while, I was chasing a boxing PED story, and I uh, got somehow caught up, like, with, like, uh, you know, like, the ex-head of Balco and, like, um, and uh, Travis Tigard, who's, like, the head of USADA, U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, the guy who sort of most vociferously took down uh, Lance Armstrong. And, um, you know, I, I, I was just wrong at some point. <laughs> like, everything that I was chasing was wrong, you know? And uh, thank God, like, by, I had my editor at the time, Rafe Bartholomew at Grantland, who I think is one of the best editors in America, uh, just in terms of really sort of caring and making sure that you're right and making sure you do the work and... Uh, not being sort of like bowled over by, you know, sort of sensationalistic stuff. He basically just took me aside and he's like, I think you're wrong. And then I, you know, and then I got mad, of course. I was like, hey, listen, I'm the one reporting this. And then 
Uh, very quickly, I realized that he was totally right, you know, like uh, I was chasing something that was not real. And so that was like, <laughs> I remember that was like two months down the drain, you know? Yeah. Um, so, the, yeah, and then I don't know. Some of the, I don't, I don't know. I feel like every story I did or I've done over the past five years or I don't know, I guess I've been a journalist for four years now. I feel like every story has been imperfectly reported, you know? Uh, I don't, there's a lot, you know, there's, yeah, I don't know. I think I missed a lot. Every story you look back at and you see like five or six things that you've missed that you feel like you could do better. And they might not show up in a lot of, you know, um, to if anyone other than you. But, like, because you're the one who reported it, it's really obvious to you the things that, like, you could have done better. Mm-hmm. So, I guess kind of going off of, of, of Grantland and, uh, I mean, how did you kind of get your start there? How did you kind of get in contact with Bill? Uh, and and what, was, what was that experience of, of getting that the website started uh, like for you? Um, Bill read some piece that I'd written. Well, he read the essay on gambling that I wrote. And then he wrote, wrote, read some like sort of fun piece I wrote about like comparing uh, like Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, to Mariah Carey or whatever. It was sort of a charter call, um, and he just got in touch with me. I, remember I was like at my fantasy baseball draft, and um, and I got an email. I looked at my phone, and there's an email from, like, Bill Simmons, and I was just like, okay, whatever. This can't be real. Um, and, yeah, he had sort of wanted me to come out and talk to some of the people that he had, uh, you know, like, that were behind the scenes at the time. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a little bit surreal for me, honestly, because I hadn't made any money writing. I'd only really published two pieces, but um, Bill pays more attention to things that people write or what's been written, like not just on the internet, but everywhere, than, than seems humanly possible to me. I mean, he know if you've written anything good, like, uh, and it doesn't matter how many people read it, like there's a pretty good chance that he's read it, you know? So um, it's one of those things where the sort of appetite he has for reading um the speed with which you can process it is so capacious and you know impressive to me i don't i don't know i don't know how he does it so he had found these things I, the gambling essay probably wasn't too hard to find at that point but the other thing like it wasn't like everybody read that um and he was like i think you're perfect for the site um you know i went down to new york i met with uh dan fearman um who was sort of at the time, uh, doing things behind the scenes. And then I flew to L.A. to meet Bill. And then, yeah, they hired me. I don't know. Uh, then I went down like a, six weeks later and started working in the L.A. office. Uh, There's like three of us there. What, what, what were some of those early days like, getting the, the site off the ground? <laughs> uh, it's a lot of emergencies. Um, I didn't really know what I was, I had not really worked in an office like that before. And so I don't think that I really knew what I was doing. Um, like, I think that I knew how, how to, that the general sensibilities that we wanted to do and, <clears throat> um, like what writers I wanted to approach, but 
in terms of sort of navigating a giant corporation and uh, trying to figure out how to create this thing within that context, like, it would, I don't know. I think it was, <laughs> it was like every, me and my friend Lane, who uh, is now at New York Magazine, um, we would just like freak out every day, you know, like something would make us freak out. There was, I remember there was a day when, uh, after the site launch, there was a Sunday where ESPN or somebody had forgotten to renew the site domain, grantland.com, and so it went offline for like two days or three <laughs> days or something like that. Like, I, I think if you search back, Desmond definitely made fun of us for it. So, um, and it literally was that like somebody had missed an email, I think, that was like, do you want to renew this domain name? And, they, and, it, and it just expired. And so then when she went there, it went to like, would you like to buy grantland.com and then it just like then there's like this hysterical idea that we had that maybe like someone at deadspin or awful i don't think an awful announcing existed back then so i don't want to like reverse engineer this but like you know one of these big lead or something like that would just buy the domain name you know and that uh we they would just hold it hostage at espn or something like that so yeah they're just emergencies like that all the time um but it was it was really exciting at the same time, because, you know, yeah. it was like, well, we were like, well, I was working with writers that I had admired forever, like, you know, Tom Bissell or whoever. Um, and um, and there's a, yeah, I don't know. It's cool. What were some of your favorite early memories, I guess, from the, the first couple of years of, of, uh, of working on the site? Um, let's see. Well, the night before the site went up, um, I was with Lane, um, and we were in the office till three o'clock in the morning arguing about captions. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just like, it was like a, one of those moments I think that probably both of us will remember forever, um, in the sense that, you know, like we were so nervous cause this thing was going live the next day and we knew that it wasn't perfect yet. And we were trying desperately to, like, fix everything, you know. Um, and the stress level is just high. And, you know, at some point I might have thrown something at him. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, we were just, like, really going at it. Um, now we're, like, you know, now we're close. Uh, I, you know, I, I was, we were close back then, too. But, um, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I just think the sort of idea the sense like oh my god this is happening and then everything else after like for the first few months we we had a lot of things not be perfect and sort of uh um you know like we there's a lot of typos on the site for example um you know like uh we hadn't really figured out what the distribution of writers was going to be like uh, we didn't know what the splits between sports and culture were going to be like and, you know, I don't know, I, the problem solving, I think, for that uh, and the stress and the amount of pressure that was on a very small group at the time uh, it was like me, Robert Mays, who was uh, 23 at the time, I think, and he was so, like the associate editor, um, Dan uh, and Lane and Bill. That's basically the staff back then. Um, it's just enormous. And I don't think that I'll ever probably do anything that's that exciting and that's sort of bewildering and and big where I feel that over my head 
uh, again, or at least I hope I don't, but man, it was really exciting. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm actually really happy that I went through that because, uh, I think it sort of taught me a lot about things that I could do and things that I like, just like have no ability to do. I think for a lot of people, uh, my age, especially like a lot of my friends from high school, um, Bill Simmons is kind of this legendary figure. Um, he's like a, uh, he's kind of like a sports demigod in, in the eyes of at least a lot of my friends. Um, so, I mean, what were, what was kind of your first experience, uh, I mean, when when you met Bill, what was your kind of impression of him? And I mean, what if your what are some of your favorite memories of uh, working with Bill um, during your time with, with Grantland? So when you're like what twenty two now or something? I'm twenty, and and I'm from Boston, so it's just kind of it's just kind of a a, a kind of a perfect storm of of growing up with Bill Simmons is writing. So when Grantland started, you were sixteen. I think it was a sophomore in high school, maybe. Oh my god. And then, um, before, <laughs> and then before that, uh, and so you were, did you, but when Bill was writing on like page two, for example, you must've been like 10 years or nine years old or something like that. Right. I mean, I grew up with ESPN, the magazines just kind of littered around my house. My mom's an artist and she was always really interested in the graphic design of, of ESPN, the magazine. So she subscribed to it before I even like realized that we had a subscription. And so, so I was, and you're reading the back. And you're reading his back page column? Yeah, and, I, and so I was reading his, his column uh, at the very least, and then like that eventually transitioned to like me having a computer and being being able to read page two. But I mean, that, that I think that was the case for a lot of my friends growing up. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the uh, wait, I'm sorry. So the question was, um, I mean, it was like, I mean, what was your kind of first oh, impression okay. of Bill? So, and uh, yeah, yeah. The, so for me, it was since I'm I'm like of the age where. Uh, let's the stuff Bill was writing when he just started at ESPN happened when I was in college, um, like late in my college career. But man, we were really into it, you know. Like it was like the, and I I don't mean to seem so like uh, I like I mean, but I went to school at Bowdoin with a lot of guys from New England, and um, we were all really big Red Sox fans, and we would watch. Uh, you know, Pedro pitch. Like, every Pedro pit start, we would just gather. Oh, yeah. Um, most of the Red Sox games, but the Pedro starts were, like, special occasions. Like 99, 2000-ish. Uh, a little later than that, maybe, two, like, 2000, 2001. Okay. Uh, something like that. I mean, that's yeah. still that's still peak Pedro. <laughs> I mean, they view... Yeah, was, let's see, the, the relief, the Cleveland relief game, I was... I had dropped out of school that year, so I wasn't in school then. Um, and I was living in San Diego. I watched it. I remember I watched it at my friend's house who lived, like, in the apartment below me in San Diego. But uh, when I came back to Bowdoin, um, that's when I sort of started hanging out with this group of guys. We watched a lot of the Red Sox. I mean, it was, like, 2000, 2001, something like that. But um, it, and they, it, it was, like, I think Ramon, I think his brother was pitching. and uh, <laughs> Ramon Martinez. Yeah, do you remember that year? There was a year where, like, I think there was a year. Let me look it up. There was a year where, uh, anyway, around then, um, and I think that's about when around the time when uh, Bill was really sort of, uh, sort of gaining a lot of traction. And I remember I just had a friend of mine who lived in the same suite as me, and he was like, "Have you read this guy, um, Bill Simmons? Uh, I think you know he's pretty funny and like uh, writes a lot about Boston sports." And so. I don't know. It's interesting. I just started like that. Um, and the way that a lot of people my age started reading him 
which, uh, you know, and I just kept reading. I, I was a huge basketball fan from growing up in uh, North Carolina and Chapel Hill. Like, you know, you just have to be a basketball fan. And so to have somebody writing about basketball in a way that was, like, expansive and intelligent and sort of, like, uh, address a lot of the questions that I had about basketball or anyone who was obsessed about basketball had, uh, it was really, you know, it was, it was really cool. And so I just kept reading him, and that's why when he, uh, and so when I started working with him, you know, I think a lot of us had a little bit of a problem because it wasn't like working for a boss uh, where, you know, like, for example, right now, um, uh, you know, like at the, like Jake Silverstein is the head of the New York Times Magazine or David Remnick is the head of, uh, I get Remnick is a little bit different, but like, you know, like these are, like Jake is like a wonderful editor and a really sort of, intelligent and sort of warm and smart guy but i didn't grow up reading him and he wasn't a celebrity to me you know (laughs) bill was and so it was actually really odd at the beginning because i found that like it was hard for a lot of us to stand up and give our opinion to him uh if we thought that something needed to go in a certain direction um and uh, at least I did, and I, I think I, I think the others did too. If they, um, I don't want to speak for them though. But uh, you know, so th- in that way, it was it was, it was int- weird because the people that he hired tended to be people who, um, ca- you know, obviously grew up re- reading about sports or interested in about sports, uh, and that they all knew who he was, you know, and um, you know. But he's, but you know, he sort of made us get over that pretty quickly, and uh, he's a good guy to work for. I don't know, like the sort of endless loyalty that people from Grantland have been showing over the past few months, and even when he got suspended by ESPN, is not really a, it's not really a mistake, you know. It's not like a coincidence, or and it's certainly not like sort of cynical, uh, like sort of self-interested actions by the people who are are sort of out there saying that Bill's a great boss, you know? It's just that, like, when you read something saying, like, oh, he did this, this, or this, you just get pissed off because it doesn't bear any... uh, It doesn't bear any relation to, like, the person that you worked with. And, you know, we used to work with him every day, you know? So, (laughs) like, you just sort of think, well, who would know better, you know? Like, me or this guy who's just, like, writing this based on, like, two anonymous sources or whatever the fuck. Anyway... Yeah, it was great. I, I, I really would, uh, you know, I don't have anything bad to say about it. I mean, what, what do you think it was about Bill that kind of brought this, uh, this strong loyalty to, to all of his staff members? Um, I don't, because he would support you. Like, uh, you know, like when I said I wanted to go out and learn to be a reporter, like a better reporter, uh, you know, he, he made it possible. Like, he was like, okay. You know, I was like, I want to, like, when I'd say to things, you know, uh, I wrote a piece about Don King that did pretty well, you know, and I I think of all the reported pieces that I did, I'm, like, proud of that piece, and uh, that was his idea, you know? He's like, why don't you go (laughs) go profile Don King? I'm interested to see what Don King is up to, and here's, like, two months or whatever, to go track him down and find him and follow him around from three cities, you know, uh, in three cities. And uh, here's an editor who will, like, really make your work better. And, 
you know, like, I don't know, man, like that sort of support and, and also like just sort of as a writer, the idea, like I am interested in what this might be my idea to find what, what Don King wants to say, but I'm really interested because I want you to, like, this is an idea that I want for you to do. Like, I want to know what you think of Don King. I want to know what you observe about King. And it's not like this heavy-handed top edit that happens sometimes in publications that, um, where if an editor gives you an assignment, really what they're trying to do is, in the end, it's sort of a referendum on your ideas and the editor's ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, look, people write for different publications. Different publications have different uh, things, different reasons for existing. And the reason why those sorts of big top edits happen is because they're for different for organizations that have a different type of readership that comes to expect a certain type of piece. And so, you know, I did the same sorts of, like, when I worked at The New Yorker, I would sometimes do really heavy-handed topic type stuff uh, when I was, even on the web, uh, because I knew the institution I was working for was not Grantland. So, he, so at, at what point did you kind of, uh, as a staff, uh, realize that, that Grantland was starting to hit its stride? Um, and uh, and what was what was kind of the uh, the culture on the staff at that point? Uh, I don't think that at the beginning when I was there, um, I don't know if we did it. Uh, I think that the credit for Grayland hitting its stride and becoming sort of the daily force that it was should go to people who are not me, you know, because I had sort of um, been. Uh, you know, I, I I would say that if people are like, okay, well, did Jay have influence in sort of selecting the writers and and the original architecture of the site? I would say I do think that I probably had some influence in that. But in terms of like when it really became like a Grantland, I think became like sort of a force in terms of media. Uh, I think a lot of that was happened when I was a writer, which you know I think is different than when you're an editor and you're in those meetings and everything like that. So. I don't want to take any credit for that, or I, I don't even want to speculate on that because there are other people who can speak to that much better. Mm -hmm. um, what was the second part of it? Um, so I mean, so I, I guess for you, like when uh, f for you, what was the what was kind of the, the cultural atmosphere uh, when you, you were you were writing for Grantland, um, uh, and and how did you how was that kind of different from from any other place you had written? Um. It's just much more free, and uh, I think that, you know, I think Bill's, gen or not even, the general site's idea was that there's a way in which you can get a writer in a space in which they really feel uh, free, and that they feel like they can do their best work, and that they want to do their best work, and that they aren't always looking over their back at the next person coming, they aren't looking over their back at the fear of being fired or the fear of not being able to, uh, you know, of being having their contracts not extended, everything like that. And that um, if we get writers into that space, then they would produce their best work. Uh, and that we would try and find writers who would, who would gravitate towards that, if that makes sense, right? Like we wanted a writer who wanted to be the, like sort of their own thing and not just be part of like a bigger institution, right? Um, it wanted to not just be part of like a house style, it wanted to like sort of be their own sort of planet, right? Um, and <clears throat> I don't know, uh, that, that, so 
I think the whole culture around writers there is facilitating all of that um, for them and uh, for the editorial staff as well. Uh, you know, like I think Chris Ryan, who ran the Triangle blog, I think he did a, you know, like I think his he's just great at that. Like he kind of gets what these writers are. Um, you know, he gets how he should push them and he gets how he should sort of work with them. Like, uh, I think I look, I don't, I wasn't there for any of this, but like, you know, just from afar seeing what happened with a writer under Chris, like Shea Serrano or something like that, where, you know, like at first he starts contributing to shoot arounds and sort of doing these texts from coach Popovich joke things, um, which are, you know, hilarious. And then he transitions into writing about his, uh, Coaching middle school football, which I still think is some of the best stuff that was ever published on Grantland. Now he's like the number three best-selling author in the New York Times, you know, mm-hmm. uh, bestseller list. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think that, you know, I'm sure that I don't think Grantland deserves all the credit for Shade's success by any means. But that's the sort of atmosphere we wanted to create at the beginning, you know, like I think that... Uh, Someone like Brian Phillips or Rembrandt, some of the more sort of noted writers on the site, like Andy Greenwald. Um, I don't know. I think that they, I didn't work with, I only worked with a few of those, but uh, so I don't want to, but, you know, we tried to get them to uh, be who they, you know, like the best sort of versions of who they wanted to be as writers, not just sort of like, people who are thinking, oh, well, this is good for my career, and can I fit into this box that will be good for my career? Mm-hmm. So, so what, when, you, when you found out that the, the site was, uh, was closing down shop um, a couple weeks ago, what, what was kind of your first reaction? Uh, I was really shocked, and then I was like kind of in shock, and I, I don't know, I... I it, I didn't, I, look, I don't have any real interaction with ESPN at all anymore, so I obviously didn't see it coming. Um, I felt really bad for some of my friends who worked there, and uh, and then after a few hours, it really set in that uh, something I had worked a lot on and dedicated, like, a lot of my life towards, and uh, it was over, and then I, you know, I, I, it just sucked. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Like, uh, I don't, <laughs> yeah, it just sucked. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, I guess I couldn't really, and especially when the site, like, went down and they put that uh, sort of banner over it. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it wasn't the best day. I just felt like they had, you know, that things had ended in a way that was unnecessarily abrupt. Uh, and, and that, um, you know, I don't, and that, that they had really sort of treated a lot of people in ways that, uh, you know, that, that will come out in the next six months or so. But uh, I don't know. I don't, again, I wasn't there working there, so I really don't want to say anything about it. But for me personally, it was, was just like, a, hey, wow, this thing that I worked on really hard doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, I don't know. Do you think that a website like Grandland that that kind of um, that kind of positioned itself as kind of uh, a, a, a bastion or, or a place of, of good writing, um, not being able to seek financially? I mean, what what do you think that means um, for for the industry? 
I don't know. I mean, I like again, I don't I just know what happened there for the first two years and the financial stuff I think can be I, I like the, I, the idea that I would have any sort of intelligent comment on that is like I, I, don't, I just don't I don't have any I don't know <laughs> like this like Bill didn't share that you know or like you know Marie Donahue or John Skipper didn't come to us with like a balance book you know like it'd be like well you guys are this much of the red or whatever so I, I have no I'm like do this if you do this and you'll get in the black or whatever I have no clue mm -hmm. in terms of could it be a successful business or media thing I, I don't know I, a lot of people wrote a lot of things about that uh, and I think that almost all of them were uninformed and I think almost all of them were silly like I just you know I don't under, I don't think it's any big lesson for sports media uh, or media in general I think it's uh the peculiarities of the world's biggest sports media company, you know, um, and uh, and a very high-profile project, and that the idea that like this means that good sports writing can't exist on the internet, or that like uh, I don't know, I saw someone tweeting like you know, sports writing in general can't withhold this sort of rigor. Like I mean, come on, you know, I mean, it's just one site. Like it's not. Like, people will always be interested in good writing. Like, people will always be interested in, like, connecting with writers and, like, critics. And I don't know. I mean, the idea that, like, there's, like, that we're all doomed or something like that. We are all doomed, but it's not because, like, Grantland failed, you know? We're all doomed. It's because the aliens like... and the zombie apocalypse are coming. Well, no. I mean, it's for th it's because of things like Adblock, you know, or, like, iOS Adblock, adding Adblock, or, like, you know, like, uh, ad pages being down, or, like, you know, like, uh, or, um, or, you know, aggregation sites or whatever, you know, whatever the sort of, like, du jour, the sky is falling type of thing in media, you know, like, that's much more of a thing to worry about than, you know, um, what the, what Grantland not being around anymore means about everybody's possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think one of the, one of the first times that I kind of uh, came across your writing was uh, on Grandland was during was during Linsanity because um, I, I remember Linsanity just like being a time uh, in my life in, the, in in watching sports as a sports as a sports consumer and um, and then seeing kind of my family uh, specifically like my mom and sister who were not really the the biggest sports consumers uh, in the world um, and then seeing them kind of crowd around the TV and be really engaged in watching. Um, you know this this Asian American kid from Harvard go go ham on the Lakers and the Raptors and uh, being on the cover of Time for two straight weeks. So, I mean, for you, um, what 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 was that what was that time like for you when you when you were uh, when you were writing some pretty prominent things on uh, this national phenomenon? Oh yeah, uh, man, I don't know. I was talking to a friend recently about it, and like uh, I, I said, you know what? Actually, it was like this guy. I, was hanging out with had said that like and he was he's a chinese taiwanese american kid and he is good athlete and you know still plays pickup and stuff like that and he's like and he's from new york um he grew up in new york and he was like linsanity he was like linsanity might have been the best two weeks of my life and i was like come on you know and then i thought about it for a long time and i was like man it's really up there you know and i i think that uh for me um and other people i talked to are asian basketball fans you know i i just think it's up there like i don't know it was i 
it was, uh, it, you know, I don't know. I just, it was just so improbable. And um, I had written about him before. Like, I had written him actually, even before I had written anything uh, for anybody, really. I wrote for Free Darko about Jeremy when Jeremy was like in college or something. Um, so I had been following him, but it wasn't really, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't think he was good. You know, like when he like sort of stopped John Wall in the summer league, I was like, all right, that's the best it's going to get. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was, I don't know. I, I just, I like, I went to that Lakers game with Rembert and, um, and I like, I flew out to LA or I flew out from LA. And I saw that game and man, it was like the most exciting sporting event I think I've still been to, you know, like, and it's just a regular season game, the next two weren't even that good, uh, but, uh, Carmelo was yeah, out. It was, all of it was really, yeah, all of it was really memorable, um, yeah, like, Kobe was going back, trying to, like, you know, like, go back at him, at the, down the stretch, you know, and then he, like, wouldn't, he just kept scoring, um, I don't know, it was awesome, and, uh, it's so, actually, that I still watch a lot of uh, Jeremy's games like that. I watched a lot of the Hornets games for you know for that reason. And every time he gets hot a little bit, I just start like uh, he played the Knicks the other day. I was, I was watching with a few guys and um and he just started torching uh, um, Jerry and Grant and I was just like man, <laughs> I got this little like pump up. I was like all right, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's send me to. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I guess. I'm still like sort of like uh, I'm still sort of in shock that that happened. Um, and you know, writing about it, I thought was uh, you know that was really also Grantland. You know, it was like basically being able to write about that phenomenon from a from a stance in which I didn't have to explain a whole bunch of shit, but I could get straight to what I wanted to write about. And what I wanted to say was like invaluable. I don't know if that exists in a lot of places, you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of places when you're, like, Asian or uh, anything other than, like, a white dude, like, the first half of the article has been explaining shit, you know, to, like, the presumed reader of the publication. Um, and then by the time that's over, like, you know, the sort of spirit of it is gone. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, so when you were, when you were writing during that time, uh, as kind of one of the... I guess few uh, Asian American voices in sports media. Um, did you ever really think about uh, your role or, or just kind of the place of Asian Americans in media? No, I, you know, that's something I've started thinking about a lot more recently. Uh, during that time, I didn't really think about it as much. Um, I did think it was, you know, I knew Pablo. Uh, Pablo and I actually met at that game, I think. Pablo's yeah, we did. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I met him for the first time at that game, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Pablo was writing, you know. Um, and Pablo, I think at the time was at SI. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I, I guess it didn't occur to me that there weren't that many other Asian sports writers. Like, you know, I knew, I mean, I, I could, I guess I, if you asked me, I would say that that was true, but it was, didn't dawn on me as this huge problem. Um, what's his name? Was there, uh, like, because I, I would see that guy, the Lakers beat writer, what was his name? Um, man, I'm blanking on his name. He's at uh, Bleacher Report now after being at the OC. I know Rogers who you're State. talking about, but I, I, yeah, Mike, 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 Mike
and uh, Heaven Ding. Heaven Ding, yeah. Um, and then of course I knew uh, Kawakami, who had blocked me on Twitter, like when I, you know, like when Twitter started. <laughs> like, I like. <laughs> I don't even remember what I said. I was something about some like Oakland Raiders defensive back that I, you know, and I don't even think I claimed I said it that like disrespectfully, but he just immediately blocked me. He still has me blocked. It really drives me crazy because I, you know, I, I sort of admire his like his calm work. Um, um, yeah. So though that, but you know, I don't know. I guess I just didn't think about it very much. Uh, now I do. Now I feel like since I'm in. New York, and I actually have a view of what media is, you know, um, I think about it a lot more, but back then, I mean, like, you have to understand, I had never worked for any media organization before, I was just like a, basically like a sports fan who was a writer, um, and I just came in and, you know, like, starting Grayland and everything like that, uh, with these guys with so much work that I don't think I really thought about my place there, you know, I was just like, kind of glad to be a part of it mm-hmm. what i mean what kind of what kind of triggered you starting to think about it more because like for me i've been writing a lot of internship apps over the last month or so and so like as a result you have to go through a lot of self-reflecting essay prompts and so it's got me thinking a lot yeah i mean it's got me thinking about like being Asian American and and uh, and um, and and talking to um, like other Asian American families at church and um, and and them being quite like questioning my my uh, desire to to go into writing rather than like wanting to be a doctor or go go into law or something like that. Um, yeah. So it got me thinking a lot about that. But I mean, for you, what is what was what what's been kind of the the trigger that's kind of gotten you thinking about that i didn't realize because i had lived in california and um i hadn't been part of media um i didn't realize just i don't know i guess when i started working really in it you know i just realized how white it was um and how uh people of color's narratives were sort of treated um, within that giant machine, um, and uh, and how much and the expectations that were placed on us as writers. Again, these are all things that never happened when I was at Grantland, you know. Um, and really, I would say that of all the things that I feel grateful towards them about, that I feel like I didn't appreciate enough when I was there. Like that's the, the number one thing, you know. Um, like you know, if you look at Grantland's roster, just in terms of like not just in terms of Asian writers, like there's Washu, there's me, Jason, um, Concepcion, his network, there was uh, Emily Yoshida, and uh, there's just like a like uh, just a lot of uh, Jeff Yang, not Jeff Yang, Jeff Chang wrote for us. The uh, sort of got you know he writes about hip hop, um, writes books about hip hop. I mean, there's just a lot and. It just never even occurred to me at the point that it was different, you know, like, and since I was editing a couple of them and like, you know, like uh, Rafe was editing a few the people, um, Chris, like it, it was never a thing. Like it was never like a go out and find other, like this ex writer because we had a lot, you know, and the, we, we never pushed them to write anything other than what they wanted to write. Once I got to New York and sort of realized that that was just sort of like, uh, like that what I had been living in was not the norm. Like, 
man, it really, really sort of became uh, apparent to me. You know, that's when I started thinking about these sorts of things a lot, and uh, I. That's when I started really, you know, I became like a big part of. I think who I am as a writer now, which is not to write about these things, but wherever I'm going to work, I'm going to try and make them as aware of it as possible. Um, I think at the Ties Magazine right now, we have like a writing staff that's like, you know, it's pretty, represents a lot of different viewpoints and stuff. So that's part of the reason why I went over there because uh, maybe really, you know, like it, it's it's sort of like a cool to look around and be like, like this is what a publication can be like. This is what I sort of remember from Grantland. Um, obviously, being at the Times, you have different. <laughs> it's not like you can't write. Uh, there's responsibilities that are important to remember, you know, as being part of it. But uh, and I'm not really. I don't even work there really as a full time person. But I, you know, I think of myself as being. Uh, at least I feel like I'm involved in writing um, aspect of it. And that when I write things, I think about publishing them there, there first. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's something I think about a lot now um, because I feel like there's a lot of uh, that things are not, they sort of encourage writers of color to sort of not, the but a lot of New York media doesn't encourage writers of color to sort of like pursue writers that they, want to become mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes sense i feel like i just said 15 things i want <laughs> so so i guess how, how does uh how does how has that kind of influenced your writing uh whether it's like kind of kind of through your reporting subconsciously or or otherwise i don't think it's influenced my writing um i just didn't think it influences the way that i sort of interact professionally uh, and um i think it has influenced the way that i think about things a lot you know um, I mean, the other thing is that we're in a moment that right now, in terms of race in the country in general, that we weren't in in 2011, 2012, you know. So I think maybe that probably contributes a lot to it as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a, right now, I just, if I could list priorities for myself, I think that trying to figure out a way to make publications uh, better, to sort of build strength out of a diversity of writers and perspectives and areas of expertise and backgrounds, not just racial or ethnic, but also like socioeconomic. Um, like, uh, I, I think that's my top priority uh, in trying to figure out the way that places can do that. I don't, um, you know, and th this is outside of the work that I do as a writer, I mean, this is just things that these are just conversations that I have with people who I know, um, who are editors or who work in industry. Uh, I don't know. I just think it's like the most important thing. And I think that, uh, if media in New York, sort of legacy of media in New York does not wholeheartedly embrace this, that, you know, it's, it's going to be really disastrous for them because I think the world that we're entering does not accept the sort of old standard of, oh, well, you know, like we're going to have this Harvard-educated uh, person um, weigh in on everything, you know, from like Ferguson to, um, you know, um, I don't know, Beyonce or something like that, right? Like, like people want some sort of investment. People want expertise through like when you, 
you grew up or like how you grew up, not just like expertise through where you went to college. And uh, people want like this sort of, you know, people want to read from a lot of different people. They want to hear from a lot of different people. And uh, right now, I don't think that public New York reflects that. Like, I don't think it reflects that desire from the readership. And I think that uh, a lot of places are changing very quickly to try and get there. But, you know, I think that part of what I find important right now is to make sure that, or to do everything I can do to, you know, sort of help them get there. I don't know. Um, does that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, my last question for you before I let you go. Um, what was it like going to the zoo with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Oh, man. I don't want to say anything about it because uh, uh, I feel like it'll sort of infringe on the piece, you know. Um, I don't – it was – I don't know. It was odd. It was the way that it was sort of detailed, I think, and the way that I wrote about it. I, um, you know, I, he's like – he knows a lot about animals. <laughs> a lot of facts. You know, he would walk by an exhibit and – there would be a fact dropped um, from him, and you know, most all the facts are right. <laughs> Checker looked over them, and he was like, "Man, <laughs> he's, he, he's right about all this." You know, um, it's he really knows a lot about animals. All right, uh, Jay, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. So that was Jay Caspian Kang of the New York Times, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jay Caspian Kang. Uh, he was an awesome guest, uh, and uh, yeah, if you haven't uh, if you haven't checked out that piece that they mentioned at the end about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, and going to the zoo uh, with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I highly recommend it. It's, it's uh, awesome. very very interesting, um, incredibly kind of insightful, um, and kind of wraps up Kareem in a way that uh, not a lot of pieces have done before. It's also uh, just like funny to imagine. Like Jay Caspian Kang, who's this like Asian dude who's probably like five nine, five ten, <laughs> with Kareem Abdul Jabbar at the zoo, who's seven feet tall. And Kareem just spouting off random facts about, you know, like animals. marmots and stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so thanks again, Jay, for coming on. We'll have Mina Kimes of ESPN the magazine on next week. Uh, so we're on a little bit of an Asian role here <laughs> to to start off the podcast. But we'll have some great guests on uh, in the coming weeks as well. Um, I, As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I went to see Creed this week. Uh, or actually today. I saw Creed today just a few hours ago at the uh, lovely Ithaca Mall uh, here in beautiful Ithaca, New York. Uh, Best decision of the week, right? It was fan- It was a great escape for me for studies period. I yeah. just, it, was, it was so well uh, it was just a very well-made movie overall. Yeah. Just uh, solid all around, yeah. Michael B. Jordan, that dude is the bomb, the absolute bomb. He's, yeah, he's you, absolutely fantastic. If you don't leave with a man crushed on Michael B. Jordan, then then you're not human. In that movie, he's he's fantastic, as as he is in a bunch of other movies too. But um, it was just like crazy to see how ripped he got, and how, yeah, it was, and how self-conscious I left the movie theater about my own, <laughs> about my own body. Dude, so so true story. Actually, uh, I was out here on Thanksgiving, um, and I couldn't I couldn't fly back, so I was out here actually by myself on Thanksgiving. So I went to go see Creed, and uh, great decision. Uh, it was a fantastic movie, obviously. But you know, leaving the theater, um, I was so uh, so inspired. You know, you can't go home uh, after watching Creed. And, you know, like go eat pizza. You know, like you're you want to go do something. You want to go punch people in the face. Yeah. Well, so my version of that was going running. Um, so I went on a 13 mile run that day. And 
the entire time. I was talking about Michael B. Jordan running through the streets of Philadelphia right before uh, he fights. Um, what's the British dude's name? Uh, what's his face? Uh, pretty Rick. Yeah, Conlon. Pretty Ricky Conlon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, so yeah, if you go see it, um, definitely know that when you come back, you're you're gonna go want to go do something active. Um, so. I, I mean, I just like I saw Michael B. Jordan. I can't even imagine like the kind of diet that that dude went through. Yeah, actually, I read something about it. Apparently, he would, uh, it was obviously a very strict diet, um, a lot of proteins, a lot of lean meats, uh, not a lot of carbs, and a lot of vegetables. Um, but apparently, he had one cheat day every week. And, uh, this is on the so, podcast. Was it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he had one cheat day every week, and he would, you know, just gorge himself like honey buns and pizza. And then, according to the article I read, he, he stopped after a while. Um, because he like he was, his body was so used to you know like real like good healthy food that when he ate this crap that you know his stomach would hurt for a couple of days after. So really, my trash can in my room has like three Domino's pizza boxes. <laughs> right now. So hey, the thing about the the uh, pretty Rick Conlon, whoever the guy that that pretty Ricky, yeah, who Adonis Creed was facing in the movie, that dude was chubby as hell. Like it. Yeah, I actually thought that too. They they didn't really pick a. Like very in shape dude to to be his foil. Yeah, so, I, I thought that exactly. So I, lo- I was looking that up on the bus ride back, and that that guy's an actual boxer. Is he really? Oh, yeah. Oh, crap. oh wow. Okay. So I think I uh. I think if I train hard enough, I could be a boxer now. <laughs> yeah. Then no, the the fight scene obviously is the most epic part of the movie. Well, may, maybe maybe his his like the the week before the fight might be. Um, on the same level, but you know the fight scene was just so incredibly well done. And obviously, um, we don't want to spoil things, but that the the first shot, the first uh, fight that Adonis has, where they're in that 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 small boxing ring, and that that whole fight is just one shot, is absolutely incredible. Um, the way that, wait, the, that the the fight in Mexico, the very first one. No, the second one. The second. Oh, one. the second. Okay, okay. Uh, when when uh, after Adonis is training with with Rocky. Yeah. Uh, that 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 shot where. Basically, Ryan Coogler set it up as it's basically just circling around the fight the whole time, and it goes on for a good almost ten minutes, probably. That show was absolutely incredible, um, and it's it's this movie is probably going to do big things for Michael B. Jordan and and Ryan Coogler, yeah. who are also uh, also working together in, in Fruitvale Station, um, which is also a fantastic movie if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not movie experts, but. Um... The just the, the kind of like versatility that Michael B. Jordan kind of shows, from you know his Fruitvale Station role to his role in Creed, um, to his role in a show we both adore, Friday Night Lights. Lights. Yeah. Vince Howard. He, you know every 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 position or every role that he's been in has he's he's absolutely killed. Um, so it'll be exciting to see uh, where he goes. If you had to choose between Vince Howard or Matt Saracen, who would you choose? It's a tough. That's a tough question, man. Like to to quarterback my team. No, just as like as a favorite character. Yeah, or just as like a, a best friend. Dang. Um. I do. I don't. How would you answer that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna push that back to you. So I think. So I think sometimes Saracen is just too sweet for his own good. <laughs> right. No, I think that, I think that's true. Like <laughs> I think he's so sweet and he's so innocent and he just wants to help people and sometimes that gets in the way. Because I, I think obviously Vince has his his edge and he's been in juvie, but he's got a lot of redeeming qualities, and you know that at the end of the day he's just trying to grind it out and do his best. Yeah, like yeah. I fr- I freaking love Matt Saracen yeah. with all my heart. I just you wanna, can't you can't not love Matt. Saracen. I just want to give Matt Saracen a hug. Yeah, just 
always. There's not any point in the day where I don't want to give Matt Sarah some hug. <laughs> no, he's, I mean, the dude does everything. Man. He takes care of his grandma. He's a starting quarterback on the most scrutinized team in Texas. Dates the coach's daughter. Who does not deserve Matt Saracen in, no, no. <laughs> in any regard. Not in the least, yeah. But, yeah, that's a very tough question. Um, you know, Matt... It. I'm going to push you to answer it. I mean, Matt has been the ride or die since, like, day one. Um, literally since the first episode. So I, I might have, I, I'm have to go with that. I've also I've seen the first thing, season more recently, so that's kind of fresh in my mind. But I'll rewatch. See, when does when does Vince appear? Is it three season or four? four? Four. Yeah, I'll, I'll go watch. See, rewatch everything is kind of four. fresh in my mind because I so I started Friday Night Lights like during Thanksgiving break, and I have rolled through it on Netflix <laughs> thanks to final season. Uh, and you know, I like I, so I love Vince and I love Matt Saracen, but Timmy Riggins, man, oh god, he's a, he's an undisputed champion. Yeah, there's Hair. there's. There's no greater character on television than or, Timmy Riggins. Than Tim Riggins, yeah. Jay Serrano's in love with Timmy Riggins too. It's hard yes. not to be in love with Timmy Riggins. Yeah, he's he's just an incredible dude. Um, but yeah, I mean, his, his character, his whole kind of aura of, you know, not really giving a crap, but also being there uh, when he needs you and and, very, and you know caring about the team uh, very much. You can't beat it. So, who's your least favorite character on the show then? Least favorite. Um, Let's just go season one. Let's season just one. Down to season one. All right, I'm gonna. Hmm. I mean, least favorite main character is uh, Buddy Garrity. Um, least favorite character overall is probably Matt Saracen's dad when he comes back and kind of ruins things uh, for Matt. Um, they they end up kind of reconciling, but. Uh, the, the few glimpses that you see when he first comes wasn't a huge fan of. So I probably would have gone with Buddy Garrity too, but I yeah. Lila's just the whole Garrity family. <laughs> like I could I could do I if they would just like fell in a pit, I'd be like, oh okay. <laughs> Cold world, man. Cold world. Um, what else are you watching on Netflix? Netflix right now. Uh, I mean, I'm in a per- perpetual cycle of watching Scrubs and Thirty Rock and The Office whenever I have time. Uh, let's see. What else is um, you watched? Uh, you watched Master of None, right? Master of None is the yeah. freaking best. I freaking yeah. love Aziz Ansari. Um, it was it was really good. Are you do do you like do you have do you watch stand up the like Aziz's stand up? Uh no, I haven't. Aziz's stand up is also very good. Is it okay? Uh, I'll I check think, it out. I think this is also this this is better than Master. I think Master of None is one of the best TV shows of the year. Yeah, yeah. I was actually I was reading a uh, Times article today that said that same thing. Um, that was mentioned in, in most of the lists. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's very, I don't know, it's very kind of relevant and kind of, especially to our generation, um, it's very, like, a kind of millennial-focused, um, which which is cool. I don't think, yeah. Are you a Parks and Rec fan? I, I have not watched it. Oh, God, yeah. dude. I know I should. I know I should, yeah. I've been told. I should just hang up on you right now. <laughs> Podcast is over. Uh... <laughs> But uh, no, it's. What are you watching uh, then? What are you watching on Netflix? This is on net. This is on Netflix. Um, but I'm trying to go through Modern Family. Um, watch it kind of all the way through. Um, Netflix wise, I'm always watching The Office or uh, I just finished Master of None, like I said. Um, and then Friday Night Lights is always in the background too. So. I feel like Friday Night Lights would be is very good just doing things like background. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. 
Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can kind of be on it any time. Thank you guys for listening. This has been uh, doing it for Bartolo. It's a little rough right now. We'll be getting better at this. We'll get better at this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is a lot harder than than I anticipated, and I think June did as well. Uh, you can follow the show at Bartolo Pod on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at I am Junely. Robbie's on Twitter at Harms Double Underscore Way. Uh, and if you guys have any guest suggestions or any questions for us, we'll answer questions about pretty much anything. Uh, so yeah. doing it for Bartolo at gmail.com. If you have any guest suggestions, feel free to tweet them at us. Make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes if that's how you're listening. And make sure to also leave a rating as well. It really does help us get out the word on the show uh, and double the listenership because it's zero right now. Uh, and until next time, until next week with uh, Mina Kimes of ESPN the Magazine, uh, this is June. And this is Robbie. Uh, and we'll see you guys later. Bye.